Hello, my name is Moriarty, and this is the final part of my deep dive into the history of video games. COVID-19 continued to affect the gaming landscape in 2021, with repercussions felt across software development and, unexpectedly, hardware production. The semiconductor shortage fueled by Bitcoin mining caused unforeseen consequences in the video game industry. While game postponements and cancellations became a recurring monthly event, gamers adopted the mindset that games weren't real until they were released. The industry didn't shrink from 2020, but its growth was minimal, and a significant reshuffling occurred. Mobile and PC gaming shrank, while console gaming doubled in size. China overtook the US as the largest gaming market, and new Chinese companies like MiHoYo made it onto the most profitable gaming company lists. The world of retro gaming has become a lucrative industry, with a copy of Mario 64 selling for $1.56 million dollars, only to be surpassed a few weeks later when another Mario game, Super Mario Bros. for the NES, sells for two million dollars. These staggering sales have turned personal game collections into veritable gold mines, and companies with limited print runs are capitalizing on this trend, using fear of missing out, FOMO tactics to rake in substantial profits. However, this booming market is not without its controversies. YouTubers uncover evidence suggesting that the vintage video game market might be in the throes of a bubble, inflated by potential fraudulent activities and manipulation by key players in the industry. The integrity of the market is under scrutiny, with concerns raised about the relationships between game grading agencies, auction houses, and collectors. One such questionable relationship is between WADA Games, a game grading agency, and Heritage Auctions, a company known for selling rare games. Allegations of conflicts of interest and dubious practices within these organizations are brought to light, casting a shadow over the market's integrity. The current surge in the retro game collecting market appears to be driven more by speculation and quick profit schemes rather than genuine collectors. This raises questions about the sustainability of the market and whether the bubble is set to burst. As it stands, the retro gaming industry is a high-stakes game, where the line between genuine passion and profitable manipulation seems to be increasingly blurred. With the rise of Battle Royale and MOBA genres, top gross games evolved dramatically. The gaming industry witnessed a grand consolidation as acquisitions happened every month. Giants like Embracer, Microsoft, Tencent, Take-Two, Epic, Sony, and others seemed to buy every game company in sight, creating a landscape of very big tents with little room for smaller players. The year was also marred by major upheavals within companies. Developer after developer faced massive accusations of sexual assault harassment, discrimination, and worse. Activision Blizzard alone fired or disciplined over 80 employees for egregious misconduct amid lawsuits from various U.S. states, Departments of Fair Employment and Labor Boards. Thousands of employees walked out in solidarity. Riot Games, settling its lawsuits for discrimination, paid $100 million. Cyberpunk 2077, a title that had been pulled from the PlayStation Store due to its glitch-ridden launch in 2020, was finally relisted. The game's initial release had been marred by significant technical issues, particularly on 
base PS4 consoles, leading to its removal from the store. However, after a year of rigorous patching and updates by its developer, said A Project Red, the game was deemed ready for a return. How did these changes impact the creativity and innovation within the gaming world? Moreover, with misconduct scandals shaking up companies, how will the industry adapt and respond to ensure a safer and more inclusive environment for its employees? One of the facets that elevated the experience of Resident Evil Village is its use of atmosphere. Now you may think you know what I'm talking about, dim lighting, fog rolling in, and the screams of monsters echoing in the distance, but it's much more nuanced. Village manipulates lighting and textures to not only establish mood, but to also serve gameplay mechanics. Light isn't just a visual cue, it's a design tool that teaches players to be hyper-observant. Did you notice how your eyes naturally drift towards the areas of the environment bathed in low hunting illumination? That's by design, and it's a design philosophy that dates back to horror cinema, manipulating audience attention without being overt. While other franchises and studios either outright copied their earlier hits or rehashed them poorly, Capcom successfully modernized familiar elements, satisfying veteran fans while creating a fresh experience for newcomers. It's a balancing act few can maintain, but Capcom did, despite laboring under the same pandemic-induced challenges affecting all of us. The character of Lady Demitresque stands out in this regard. With her imposing height and charismatic malice, she embodies the legacy of unforgettable Resident Evil antagonists while delivering something novel, almost a marriage between a classic Disney villainess and a survival horror monster. However, what isn't often discussed is the idea of power dynamics she introduces into the gameplay. Traditionally, the Resident Evil series has has often presented itself as a gun-toting, machismo-filled landscape. Lady Demitresque subverts this in a rather unique way. Not just a villain, but an obstacle, an ever-present threat that makes you question every action you take within her vicinity. It's a mechanic reminiscent of the stalker elements from previous entries, but pushed to an entirely new level. While I personally think this is just such a bad game, it is undeniable how successfully it integrated Lady D into gaming's pantheon and it's likely she'll be remembered fondly for the next decade or longer. Ratchet & Clank Rift Apart is undeniably one of those titles that instantly tells you a lot about its period of release. Produced by Insomniac Games, this title found its home on the PlayStation 5, right at a time when the console was gaining traction despite the challenges posed by semiconductor shortages. If you were to talk about games that make full use of new-gen hardware capabilities, Rift Apart is a textbook example. Its quick load times and the almost seamless transition between entirely different worlds showcased the prowess of the PS5's SSD. This is more than just eye candy. It influences gameplay and storytelling by maintaining the pace and immersion. No longer did players have to be pulled out of the experience by loading screens, a true advancement that, oddly enough, we haven't discussed much as time has passed. Insomniac Games had an unenviable job. They needed to appeal to multiple generations of players, each with their own entry point 
point to the franchise, from the PS3 era, the PS4 reboot, and even newcomers introduced to the Ratchet universe through Rift Apart itself. In a way, this mirrors the game industry's own generational transition, especially in 2021 when many were stuck deciding whether to jump to next-gen or stay with their existing systems due to external economic factors. Not an easy tightrope to walk, but Insomniac did it elegantly. And the introduction of Rivet, a female protagonist, was not merely token representation, but a way to expand the universe and its appeal. The developers understood that storytelling doesn't have to be compromised for the sake of inclusivity. Instead, it can be enriched by it. Rivet became an immediate fan favorite, complex and interesting, holding her own, and then some, alongside Ratchet and Clank. Deathloop. Here's a title that got people talking, especially given its pedigree. Arcane Studios had a history of delivering understated gems. Their titles like Dishonored and Prey had a cult following and were critically lauded, but never exactly broke sales records. With Deathloop, however, something changed. At least at the critical level. This was Arcane's magnum opus, garnering multiple 10 out of 10 scores and igniting conversations across casual and dedicated gaming circles alike. Yet it's interesting how this game met an odd fate. Embraced by critics, viewed more tepidly by the general public, and falling out of discourse much quicker than anyone would have expected for a critically acclaimed title. The core concept of Deathloop is a cocktail of innovation. It's that sort of heady mix you rarely get, a time loop mechanic blended with the polish of a first-person shooter, all marinated in a dual protagonist story that had both style and substance. You'd think that would be a surefire hit, yet the ultimate outcome was much more nuanced. What we're grappling with here is a game that does some things extraordinarily well, but seems to stumble over its own ambitious feet. Take the time looping mechanics, for instance. They aren't just a flashy feature, but integrate deeply into the gameplay and narrative. Every loop grants you new opportunities, changing conditions and variables that keep the player engaged. However, therein lies a seldom-discussed irony. For a game built on repetitive loops, the experience itself became, well, a bit monotonous. The novelty wore off quicker than anticipated, and that's something I think resonates when we talk about game design. The challenge of sustaining intrigue without diluting the central mechanic. And that's without even touching the significant structural issues inherent in the narrative itself. Deathloop's asymmetrical multiplayer was also fascinating and controversial. The ability for another player to enter your game as Juliana with the sole objective of taking you down, added layers of unpredictability. While other games like Dark Souls have flirted with this idea, Deathloop took it up a notch, weaving it into the story itself. However, what was meant to be a highlight inadvertently contributed to player fatigue. Some gamers eventually found this mechanic to be more invasive than intriguing, turning what should have been a thrilling wildcard into a frustrating obstacle against better skilled opponents and cheats. Critics hailed Deathloop as a breakthrough, setting expectations sky-high for a broader audience that probably wasn't familiar with Arcane's previous work. And that's the Catch-22. On one hand, the high reviews roped in new players, increasing exposure. On the other hand, these elevated expectations 
led to inevitable comparisons with other so-called perfect games, where Deathloop could not quite measure up for some. Whether it was due to its niche appeal or the disconnect between critic and player perspectives, it's an intriguing case of how games can become victims of their own hype. Eventually, I want to make a video on this game and its incredible highs and deep, deep flaws. The legacy of the Halo franchise is one both storied and complex. From its inception, it sculpted the shape of console FPS multiplayer experiences and secured the Xbox as a gaming titan. Yet, like all great empires, the golden era of Halo saw challenges both external and internal. The transition from Bungie, the franchise's original creator, to 343 Industries was more than just a change in name. It ushered in a new philosophy and approach to Halo. Halo 4 marked 343's debut, and while the game had its merits and was generally positively received, purists noted subtle shifts in tone, design, and narrative approach. These initial reservations, although mild, were perhaps harbingers of broader shifts to come. With Halo 5 Guardians, 343 Industries took more substantial liberties. The campaign, traditionally a major drawing factor for many fans, fell flat, failing to capture the same emotional gravitas and depth of earlier entries. But more noticeably, the multiplayer underwent significant alterations. Longtime fans, used to a particular rhythm and style, found the changes unsettling. While it's crucial for franchises to evolve, the challenge lies in ensuring core tenants remain intact something many felt Halo 5 missed the mark on. Halo Infinite was poised to be no different. The game's initial trailer launched and, well, it became the stuff of meme legend. The graphics, especially our dear friend Craig the Brute, left many scratching their head. But instead of doubling down, 343 did something commendable. They listened and delayed the game. Fast forward to the public beta, and the atmosphere was electric. The gameplay felt fresh, yet familiar, and there was a collective sigh of relief. Could this be the best Halo ever? The stage was set for a triumphant return, but then came the official launch. While the campaign was generally well-received, the multiplayer component faced a barrage of criticisms. While it improved on some of Halo 5, it also bore its own share of controversies. The absence of certain gameplay modes like Campaign Co-op and Forge left many feeling they had an incomplete product. High initial sales were overshadowed by diminishing player retention, revealing a disconnect between the game and its community. And while every game has its teething problems, the issues with Halo Infinite felt more profound. It wasn't just about missing features, it was about the very essence of what made Halo, well, Halo. The progression system fell out of touch, and the customization options, or lack thereof, became a sore point. I mean, having to pay for the color blue? That's like telling Mario he has to pay for his mustache. The gaming landscape was undergoing its own transformation during Halo's transitional period. The rise of games like Overwatch and Fortnite redefined multiplayer experiences. These titles with their colorful aesthetics, more general appeal, and varying gameplay mechanics began drawing players, including those once loyal to Halo. The shift in rating for Halo from mature to teen perhaps signaled 343's attempt to capture a broader audience, much like its competitors. 
years. However, this decision further alienated purists and positioned Halo as a follower rather than the trendsetter it once was. Introducing microtransactions to the Master Chief Collection, a compilation of Halo's iconic past, felt to many like a desecration. At a time when trust in 343 was already shaky, this decision was seen as prioritizing profit over player experience, further eroding faith in the franchise's direction. Halo's challenges weren't limited to the gaming realm. The much-anticipated TV series adaptation, a potential saving grace, became instead another point of contention. While adaptations always necessitate some change, the series made poor decisions, particularly with the beloved character of Master Chief. For a fandom that reveres its lore, these deviations were simply too hard of a pill to swallow, and 343 was no longer seen as an acceptable steward of the brand. Microsoft announced that 343 would no longer be the studio to work on future Halo products. And then the 2023 Games Showcase happened and it may well be one of the most telling signs of the franchise's decline. Here was the premier platform to spotlight Xbox's crown jewels, their most enticing offerings, and a stage to reassure fans about their favorite games. While the audience was treated to indie gems, deep dives into third-party partnerships, and even exclusive segments with the likes of Keanu Reeves discussing Cyberpunk 2077 Phantom Liberty, one notable entity was conspicuous absent, Halo Infinite. It's not just that Halo was missing, it's that the omission occurred a mere four days after the launch of a new season for Halo Infinite. This wasn't a period where Halo was dormant or lacked updates, the game had fresh content, which typically would be prime material for a showcase event. Yet, in the lineup that included every new DLC for Bethesda's games, discussions on High on Life, and even a behind-the-scenes look on Microsoft Flight Simulator Dune expansion, Halo was nowhere to be found. The silence spoke volumes. Yet if the showcase was the final nail, then 343's subsequent admission was the echo of the Hammer's Strike. To hear that the studio behind one of the most storied franchises in gaming history couldn't allocate budget for cutscenes, a staple in AAA storytelling, was nothing short of astonishing. This wasn't an indie developer strapped for cash. This was 343 Industries, backed by Microsoft, a behemoth valued at $2.35 trillion. The very notion that the choice boiled down to fixing bugs or crafting a cutscene is frankly mind-boggling. To put this in perspective, a company that could theoretically buy several smaller countries had to make a financial decision on whether to animate a short in-game cinematic for its once flagship title. It's like watching a supercar stuttering because it can't afford the fuel. 343's acknowledgement of layoffs, budget constraints, and rumors added another layer to the unfolding drama. While the studio's commitment to Halo and its community remains unwavering on paper, the reality paints a picture of a titan humbled. In the past, Microsoft's backing for Halo was akin to an open checkbook. Today, it seems they are even weighing the cost of every pen stroke. Starfield from Bethesda, that's the game being bundled with new Xbox hardware, that's the game Xbox executives tout, that's the game that feels like a flagship property. Halo? It's a dead franchise, and I don't think there will be much more to say about it in the future.
Metroid Dread, after nearly two decades of radio silence, broke the mold in more ways than one. What's striking isn't just the return of a venerable franchise, but also the fact that it became the highest-selling game in the Metroid series. That's significant in itself. It signals a shift in how nostalgia and modern gameplay can coalesce into something commercially potent. In a world dominated by open-world epics and real-time strategies, Metroid Dread went back to its roots, serving a concentrated dose of side-scrolling exploration, which is a far cry from the battle royales of today. This could have been a business risk, but it wasn't. Why? Because it tapped into an innate, almost latent desire for narrative-driven, atmospheric gameplay. You're not just blowing through corridors, you're immersed in an ecosystem of peril and discovery. The Emmy robots as well brought a new layer of real-time tension that had been absent from the series. These relentless hunters, necessitated not just quick reflexes, but also strategic thinking, embodying a forgotten essence of gaming, the joy of problem-solving under pressure. Roblox stands as a groundbreaking platform, transforming from a mere game to a universe of its own, blending elements of social networking, creative expression, and entrepreneurial training for a young generation. With a valuation of $38 billion in its 2021 IPO, Roblox defies the notion that games are just for consumption. It offers a collaborative, ever-evolving space that's more than a digital playground, it's an incubator for budding young developers, some as young as 10, to delve into 3D design, coding, and even entrepreneurship. The platform enables these youthful creators to not just earn, but also convert in-game currency, Robux, into real-world money, showcasing it as a prologue to future forms of economic and creative engagement. However, this glittering surface conceals a darker reality of exploitation and labor abuse. Roblox pushes these young, inexperienced developers towards creating games with a high likelihood of failure and minimal revenue potential. The hurdles for converting the in-game currency to real-world money are steep, including advertising costs and the platform's hefty cut from any profits. Worse still, developers are paid in a pretend currency, tethering them to a platform that offers limited financial mobility. This encourages burnout and perpetuates a cycle of labor abuse, as the platform promotes addictive over enjoyable game designs. In the wake of these leviathans, the return of Alex Kidd may seem quaint, but here lies a rich piece of gaming lore. Sega's erstwhile mascot had been dormant for three decades. It's a nod to the bygone era when console makers sought to define their brands with mascot characters, much like comic book companies. Alex Kidd's re-emergence is a testament to the enduring appeal of simplicity, clean lines, intuitive controls, and unambiguous objectives. Sega's decision to bring him back isn't just a play on nostalgia, it also reflects the need for medium-sized releases in the era of either indie games or blockbuster titles. Alex Kidd fits neither category, yet still appeals to a broader audience. It's a gentle reminder that there's room in the industry for the middle-child game. 
one that doesn't require hundreds of hours of commitment or offer complex branching narratives. Simple, straightforward gameplay can still hold its weight in gold, provided it's executed with finesse and passion. Returnal has an interesting symbiosis between narrative and game mechanics. Housemark has done a fascinating job of incorporating the roguelike death cycle into the protagonist's personal journey. Every time you die, you're not just restarting a level, you're reliving the protagonist's existential dread, making each gameplay loop a narrative loop as well. This design choice serves as a masterstroke in immersive storytelling. With its gameplay, it doesn't just show off, it integrates many of the PS5's features into the core experience. The haptic feedback isn't a gimmick, it's a new way of immersing yourself in the game, where each trigger pull and raindrop contributes to the mood and the stakes. It Takes Two presents a notable shift in how we view co-op games from a narrative perspective. In many co-op games, the story often takes a back seat, serving as little more than context for the gameplay. But in It Takes Two, your actions as players actually mimic the emotional hurdles the characters are going through in their failing marriage. Whether it's timing jumps to perfectly match your partner's actions, or solving a puzzle where both players must contribute equally, the gameplay mechanics are designed to foster emotional synchronicity between players, making them truly feel the highs and lows of the character's relationship. 2022 marked an era of dramatic change in the gaming world with Microsoft's jaw-dropping $70 billion proposed acquisition of Activision. This move epitomized the ongoing trend of vertical consolidation, as mid-tier developers dwindled and everyone from Beamdog to Zynga got scooped up. Even Wordle wasn't immune. Netflix even joined the fray, acquiring six studios to produce games for its platform. This wave of consolidation raised concerns about the industry's diversity and creativity. With fewer independent developers, the gaming landscape became increasingly homogenous, dominated by corporate behemoths. This shift in power dynamics affected both the types of games produced and the way they were marketed and distributed. Following the trends of consolidation, Sony acquired Bungie for $3.6 billion. Bungie, the creator of the iconic Halo series for Microsoft's Xbox platform, had previously parted ways with Microsoft and later Activision Blizzard to regain its independence. This acquisition was not merely a business transaction, but a strategic collaboration that benefited both parties. Sony could now expand PlayStation products to a larger audience and leverage Bungie's expertise in live services. Bungie, on the other hand, saw an opportunity to broaden its horizons and explore new interactive experiences. Sony's acquisition of Bungie signals a shift in the gaming industry towards owning a library of universes rather than specific platforms. Bungie, with its popular sci-fi universe and plans to expand into other media, was a valuable asset for Sony. The partnership could also lead to technology sharing and improvements in Bungie's corporate culture. In another significant development, Cyberpunk 2077 was finally launched for PlayStation 5 nearly two years after its original release. The game's initial launch was marred by glitches and performance issues, which led to its removal from the PlayStation Store. However, the PS5 version finally delivered the experience that was originally intended. Despite the damage to the brand caused by the failed launch, console players could now understand why PC players hailed it as one of the best RPGs ever. 
Meanwhile, workplace harassment continued to plague the industry, and crunch culture, long hours, high pressure, and little work-life balance finally emerged as a significant issue. In response, studios began unionizing to protect employees' rights and create a more sustainable work environment. Amid these transformations, the Steam Deck was introduced, bringing almost the entire Steam library to a mobile form factor. This innovation signaled a growing interest in mobile gameplay, as gamers sought flexibility and convenience in their gaming experiences. For a lot of gamers, this became the preferred way to play some of their favorite games. The gaming industry faced a turning point, grappling with the ramifications of consolidation and the need for cultural shifts within the workplace. How will the industry evolve in the face of these challenges, and most importantly, can it maintain the spirit of innovation and creativity that has fueled its growth for decades. Elden Ring, a collaboration between the esteemed director Hidetaki Miyazaki and famed novelist George R.R. R. Martin, has emerged as one of those paradigm-shifting titles in the video game landscape. Unlike many open-world games that hold your hand through quest markers and elaborate logs, Elden Ring took a more radical approach in line with Ghosts of Tsushima. The absence of these guiding elements allows the game to treat its players like curious wanderers, rather than guided tourists following a well-trodden path. In doing so, Elden Ring nurtures a genuine sense of wonder. You're incentivized to pay attention to the world, to learn its secrets, its characters, and the repercussions of your actions within it. To see an interesting landmark and journey to it, this sense of player agency is liberating and the individualized journeys it engenders make for deeply personal gaming experiences. In this context, the absence of hand-holding is not a bug. It's a feature that elevates the game into a narrative playground, where the game isn't just presented, it's discovered. The storytelling of Elden Ring exists as fragments scattered throughout its world. Much like an archaeological dig, the more you invest in exploration, the more coherent the story becomes. But crucially, your understanding of the world is yours alone. This approach to indirect narrative offers layers of complexity, adding substance to the game's thematic richness. It's a far cry from cutscene-heavy epics, but it offers a more textured and open-ended experience that leaves room for interpretation and debate. Now, while discussing gameplay experiences with others has been a part of gaming community for years, it's worth noting how Elden Ring mobilized this to an almost unprecedented degree. In the absence of markers and logs, players found themselves drawn to online forums, social media, and yes, even physical spaces to share information, swap theories, and offer guidance. The game managed to do what few others have, make community interaction almost a soft requirement for full enjoyment and understanding. This interplay between individual discovery and collective problem solving represents the pinnacle of organic community building within the realm of gaming. Here we have Stray, a game that so brilliantly encapsulates the essence of solitude while also fostering a sense of connection and empathy through its narrative and world building. 
You are a stray cat navigating a robot-populated, neon-soaked city. It's as if loneliness and companionship are examined through a fresh lens. That alone makes the game culturally and emotionally resonant. Stray's ability to let the world around you unfold its narrative is a delightful deviation. Take, for instance, the nuances you catch in the city's architecture, from graffiti on the walls to the expressive gestures of the robot inhabitants. You're not being told a story, you're discovering it, an interactive form form of storytelling that has its roots in classics like Half-Life and the subtle environmental cues of games like Inside. It's not just a throwback, but an evolution of a storytelling technique that has been in the background for a long time. Many games have offered non-human perspectives, think Okami, but Stray's dedication to authentically recreating cat behavior offers a unique angle of engagement. By committing to this perspective, Stray does more than entertain. It subverts our anthropocentric understanding of storytelling and challenges us to engage with the world in a different way. This mirrors the anthropomorphism trend in other mediums like literature and film, but takes it a step further by making it interactive. You're not just watching a cat navigate a world, you're embodying it. One aspect of Stray that hasn't been getting as much attention as it deserves is the techno-orientalism critique that some have raised. This is significant because it points to the larger trend of how Eastern cultures are often depicted in games. Stray creates a futuristic Asian city populated by robots, and while it's beautifully designed, there's an argument to be made that it leans into techno-orientalistic tropes, reflecting the West's simultaneous fascination and fear of the East's technological ascendancy. That Stray invokes this discussion places it in a more extensive dialogue about cultural representation in games. This is not necessarily a drawback, but a facet that makes it even more intriguing as an artifact of its time. The release of the Hitman trilogy was a milestone moment that marked the culmination of IO Interactive's meticulous work over several years. And it's not just a milestone for the developer or the stealth action genre, it's a significant marker for the entire industry for a few crucial reasons. The complexity of the original game's pricing, coupled with a wave of negative reviews at launch on Steam, showed an industry grappling with legacy issues. As games transitioned from being standalone experiences to more live service models, there's a learning curve for developers and consumers alike. Now, IO Interactive's response to this? Instead of sticking to their guns, they took accountability for the blunder, offered free upgrades, and added free DLC for early adopters. This scenario wasn't just a misstep that was course-corrected. It serves as a case study for how developers can responsibly and responsibly handle consumer feedback in real time, a trait becoming increasingly essential in today's continuously evolving gaming landscape. Moving on to the post-launch support, IO Interactive didn't just provide patches or bug fixes. They did something really compelling. They released a Seven Deadly Sins DLC series that offered more than just additional content. They wove this into a meta-narrative structure, a season of sin, if you will, that lasted for weeks at a time. It gave players a new lens to explore already familiar environments, making it more of an evolving story rather than just a mission pack. This sort of rolling content keeps communities engaged, yes, but also offers developers a framework for how to extend a game's narrative without simply adding more bricks 
next to the edifice. It's a more organic form of storytelling that fits well within the episodic nature of the modern media consumption landscape. Beyond these specifics, there's the rebranding effort to Hitman World of Assassination, which encapsulates the entire journey of the Hitman games from their original release to the cohesive and broad ecosystem they form today. It also echoes a larger industry trend where games evolve into worlds, or platforms, for various types of content. Think of it as a version of backwards compatibility, but not just in terms of software or hardware, but in narrative scope and user engagement. By packing older games into the rebranded Hitman 3, IO Interactive made a strong statement about how we should think about the life cycle and accessibility of video games. RimWorld, launched officially in 2018, still stands as an example of how a game doesn't need high-budget polish to deliver a compelling experience. Initially debuting as an alpha version back in 2013, RimWorld took a lean budget and used it to build a deeply intricate simulation, turning a survival management experience into an epic storytelling machine. This game demonstrated that narrative in video games doesn't always come from scripted events or pre-written dialogue, but often from the organic, player-driven experiences that emerge from complex systems interacting with each other. Often mislabeled as merely a management simulator, if you look at the game's AI storyteller, it's easy to see how every decision, every relationship, every death in your colony is part of an intricate web of narrative built on a foundation individual colonist psychologies. Not only do players have to manage resources, but also the mental health and interpersonal relationships of their colonists. The AI storyteller crafts events that often put the moral and ethical choices of the player under a microscope. This game speaks to the complexity of human experience in ways that are deeply interactive, and it does so with very minimal graphical fuss. Lost Ark, developed by Smilegate RPG and published by Amazon Games in 2017, revolutionized what we expect from MMORPGs. Stunning visuals and an action-packed combat system show us that MMORPGs can be as visually thrilling as any blockbuster title. Its class system, beyond just providing aesthetic choices, deeply influenced the way players approached the game, instilling a sense of ownership and individuality. The rich narrative was a reminder that compelling storytelling isn't confined to single-player experiences. You could argue that Lost Ark combined the best of two worlds, the storytelling depth commonly seen in single-player RPGs, and the communal and competitive elements that make MMORPGs captivating. Towns are bustling, the environments are incredibly varied, and the world feels lived in, something quite difficult to accomplish in online multiplayer games. But it's not just about the world you see, it's about the world you interact with. Crafting and trading don't just serve as side quests, they're vital for survival and progression, offering a degree of economic realism rarely seen in the genre. Moving on to Horizon Forbidden West. While its predecessor was praised for its world-building, Forbidden West takes it up several notches. The ecological focus, for instance, is far more than cosmetic. Through Aloy's interaction with flora and fauna, the game subtly educates players on biodiversity and the impact of human activity on the environment. 
Forbidden West also gives players underwater exploration capabilities, and this is more than just a visual feast. It expands the game's storytelling palette, opening new avenues for ecological narrative and hidden lore. Aloy's journey through a lush, post-apocalyptic Earth remains one of the most visually stunning experiences in gaming. It takes the question of what if and runs with it. What if society collapsed and nature took back our cities? What if robotic creatures roamed the Earth? These questions make the player reevaluate our relationship with technology, and that's a dialogue that continues to be more relevant each passing year. God of War Ragnarok is a narrative masterstroke in video gaming, redefining what sequels can do. The game doesn't just continue the story, it fills in the blanks fleshing out characters and plotlines that seemed peripheral in the original game. In doing so, it elevates the narrative depth and emotional investment of the series. The relationship between Kratos and his son Atreus undergoes a noticeable shift, echoing the growth and maturity of both characters, and retroactively fixing one of the major issues in the original. This is a game that shows how the medium can handle themes of fatherhood legacy and the emotional weight of one's past with nuance and grace. It also shows how a sequel can alter the discussion of an original's flaws by recontextualizing them into a sequel's boons. Sifu caught everyone's attention with its elegance. The combat system isn't just a button masher, it's a dance. Each move, each block, each strike has to be timed and executed to perfection. Game manages to recreate the look and feel of iconic martial arts films, providing both a nostalgic homage and a fresh take on the genre. This isn't just a game about fighting, it's a game about mastery, about the long and often brutal path one takes to become truly exceptional in any craft. It celebrates martial arts not just as a form of combat, but as a form of art and discipline. But the appeal of this game isn't just in its combat. Its aging mechanic, where the character grows older each time they die, adds a layer of urgency and stakes to the game. It reminds players that the path to mastery is not infinite, that there are costs and sacrifices to the relentless pursuit of revenge. Sifu's fluid combat mechanics aren't just there for show. They reflect the themes of mastery and discipline that are at the core of martial arts philosophy. Each failure and retry are learning experiences, mirroring the real-life dedication it takes to become a master. And let's not ignore Marvel Snap. While everyone was expecting yet another Marvel action game, what did we get? A card game without turns. Initially, people might have raised their eyebrows, but as it turns out, people are really enjoying it. No, they're not Disney bots. People genuinely find the strategy and fast-paced nature of the game to be a refreshing departure from the usual Marvel gaming fare. As we glance back and peek into the unfolding story of 2023, it's clear that the gaming industry has no intention of slowing down. This year has seen some significant shifts and trends that have set the stage for the future of gaming. Google Stadia has finally closed its virtual doors, leaving behind a trail of unfulfilled promises and a lesson in the challenges of cloud gaming. With Stadia's departure, the question remains, can cloud gaming ever truly compete with traditional consoles and PCs, or is it 
destined to be another footnote in gaming history. The Nintendo eShop for the Wii U and 3DS also waved goodbye, signaling a shift in digital distribution strategies. Game companies like Ubisoft started shutting down their older games' online components. Companies that had long supported their own launchers on PC were reintegrating back into the more centralized channels like Steam. As more platforms emerge and compete for a piece of the gaming pie, how will this affect the way we purchase and experience games in the future? This year has seen a continued surge in acquisitions, with the Activision-Microsoft merger being the cherry on the top. As the industry continues to consolidate, what does this mean for the future of game development? Will we see more creativity and innovation? Or will the concentration of power stifle the unique voices that make gaming so diverse and vibrant? E3, the annual convention, finally bites the dust. With the last remaining publishers pulling out, it seems the era of the Grand Gaming Expo is coming to a close. With the rise of digital events and, and alternative showcases, we're left to wonder, how will the industry adapt and evolve to keep the excitement of gaming announcements alive? EA, which had previously been a vocal advocate for multiplayer experiences, made a significant pivot toward single-player games. This change in direction was marked by the release of a remake of the beloved horror classic Dead Space and a new entry in the Skate series. Both games were met with enthusiasm by fans and critics alike, demonstrating the enduring appeal of dedicated single-player experiences. This change in EA's approach was not just a response to market trends, but also a reflection of the broader shift in the company's philosophy. In a statement, EA CEO Andrew Wilson, creator of the modern loot box, emphasized that single-player games are, quote, really, really important to the company's portfolio and future. This marked a stark departure from the company's previous stance, which had prioritized multiplayer experiences and live service models. The irony of this shift was not lost on observers. Not too long ago, EA had been insisting that every game should have a multiplayer component, and that single-player games were falling out of favor. However, the success of their recent single-player releases seems to have convinced them otherwise. There's no doubt that the gaming industry is as dynamic and unpredictable as ever. While we can't yet know what games will end up in the 2023 time capsule, we can be sure that the trends we've witnessed this year will shape the future of gaming in ways we can't even imagine. As we collectively power through 2023, let's take a moment to ponder the implications of the events we've witnessed so far. How will the industry's transformations affect our gaming experiences in the years to come? And with the ever-shifting landscape of gaming, what will be the next major trend that defines the industry as we move forward? I want to extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who watched this video. Your support means the world to me, and I'm grateful to share this passion for gaming history with all of you. A massive shout out to my incredible patrons on Patreon. Without your generous contributions, this video wouldn't have been possible. And to all my subscribers, old and new, thank you for joining me on this adventure through the ever-evolving world of video games. 
Thank you for joining me on this journey through history. If you've enjoyed all these episodes, please consider leaving me a five-star review and sharing with your friends and family, but feel free not to. Thank you to my Patreon patrons who allowed me to make this. You too can join by visiting patreon.com slash really cool. This has been the complete history of video games, a video game time capsule exploration. My name is Moriarty, and I'll see you on the next one.